Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Chicago brings its Rock and Roll Hall of Fame horn section to MGM National Harbor this Friday. I spoke with guitarist Keith Howland about the band's biggest hits, including 25 or 6 to 4, Hard to Say I'm Sorry, and You're the Inspiration. Hey, Keith, thanks so much for joining us here on WTOP. Hey, man, it's great to be here. I gotta say, uh... WTOP was probably the first uh, radio station I became aware of as a young child because uh, I was born right there in Silver Spring. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I remember my dad always listening to WTOP. I had no idea you were a local guy. So real quick, memory. Tell me about growing up in Silver Spring. You know what? High school. Uh, well, actually, I left before high school. I was there probably for... Uh, 12 years. I went to, uh, uh, originally lived on a street called Arvin Street right there in, uh, I guess, Silver Spring. And then we wound up in a neighborhood called Stonegate. And I went to Stonegate Elementary. Um, but I, the, the things I remember more about uh, that sort of DC area was uh, uh, Wheaton Music Center, which is where I got my first guitar, which is a little music shop in Wheaton, Maryland. And then uh, uh, Chuck Levin's, you know, Washington Music Center right there, the big one, was where I got most of my, uh, you know, my first Les Paul I got there, my first Marshall I bought there. And actually, when, when we uh, when, when we go there, I think I'm going to cruise over to Washington Music Center just to kind of, for nostalgia purposes, and just uh, check it out. Because uh, it's been a long time since I've been in there, and I'm sure actually probably some of the same salesmen are still there from uh you know 40 years ago so uh you know that's a family-run business so uh, i want to i might go check it out oh you should definitely do the old nostalgia tour while here for sure <laughs> well yeah. um we're, we're talking because chicago you know the the hit rock and roll hall of fame band chicago is coming to mgm national harbor on october 8th um where what can we expect from the show you know it's, i guess i assume it's all the the hits and and i guess the second part of that it's got to be exciting to be back touring again after the last year and a half of covid stuff yeah you know what it's pretty cool because um uh we started i think our first show was on june 20th um and we started with the uh big outdoor uh venues uh, uh kind of up and around new york new jersey we were at jones beach and PNC and Garden State Arts Center and some of those different venues and and um, <clears throat> we were literally for like the first week of our tour the first six or seven shows were the first show those venues had had back since COVID shut them down so it was a really kind of a cool um, 
because you could tell the audiences were really into being back seeing live music but also just being the first band in each one of those venues was really a a cool thing so and we're doing a full uh you know it's it's chicago and their greatest hits we're doing um it's over two hours of music with a 20 minute intermission so uh you know we're we're pretty much hitting every nail on the head so to speak oh well with the number of hits chicago had i mean it's not hard to put together you know a couple hours of music that's easy um well cool cool well so i mean you mentioned growing up in in silver spring um you know, were you a big fan? Because obviously you didn't join Chicago till what, like nine, 1995 or something like that. Were you were you a fan, you know, you know, growing up as a kid or anything of Chicago's early stuff? Absolutely. Um, I distinctly remember um, my older brother, who's four years older than I am. Um, he's a drummer and he was uh, taking drum lessons, I think, at Wheaton Music. Um, and his drum instructor sent him home with uh transcriptions of danny seraphim's drum parts from chicago 2 the second album and so he brought home that album because he was going to learn all the drum parts and uh um you know i had heard you know does anybody really know what time it is and maybe beginnings on the radio a couple times probably on wtop (laughs) (laughs) but uh but he brought that record home and, and we sat in his bedroom. Um, he bought it in quadraphonic stereo. So he had the four speakers, you know, quadraphonic, which is, so it's like surround sound. And we just sat in the middle of the room and, and listened to that whole album. And I remember we, we were just, we were blown away. You know, we'd never heard anything like it. And uh, so, uh, you know, our parents started, uh, facilitating us going to Chicago concerts. Um, Funny story, my first Chicago concert was I think 1975 at the Capitol Center there in DC. And uh, Terry Kath was still alive and so it was the original lineup. And uh, so we go to the concert and we're sitting there and about halfway into the concert, I'm, I'm scratching my face and I'm, I'm itching and the people in the row in front of us, this was back in the uh, days when people actually would pass a joint around at a concert. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the pot smoke was coming up and like hitting me in the face. And uh, I was, you know, 10 years old, eight, nine years old. And by the time the concert was over, my whole face was swollen, red, um, itchy and, my mother said to me, you know, now let that be a lesson to you. Never smoke marijuana because you're allergic to it, obviously. Well, I proved that theory long, uh, wrong when I got into college, but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I apparently I'd gotten into some uh, poison ivy in the, in the woods uh, behind our house <laughs> prior to the concert and gotten it on my face. So... Uh, I thought that was kind of a funny thing. She used that as a deterrent to smoking marijuana. So a memorable first Chicago show. <laughs> and um, through all that, though, they were unbelievable. And Terry Kath was amazing. And uh, uh, and to sort of extend that story as far as my 
upbringings in the uh, DC area. Um, you know, we, we, most of the concerts I saw in the DC area were at Meriwether Post Pavilion. Um, I saw the Carpenters there. I saw uh, the Doobie Brothers. I saw Santana. I saw Brian Adams. I saw, I mean, all these different groups. And, and um, my first year with the band in 95, we played Meriwether Post Pavilion. And um, obviously I saw Chicago there several times. Um, and uh, that was kind of a trip to have sort of come full circle and be in the backstage area with my family in the audience at Meriwether Post, taking the stage with the band that I grew up going to see, you know, at the very same venue. So that was kind of a kind of a pinch me moment. That is wild. Like you said, you went, you literally went to Meriwether, this institution in this area to see Chicago and not knowing, you know, your kid eyes, not knowing <laughs> that you would be standing on that same stage with that same band at that same venue. That is, that's a great full circle moment. Um, well, cool. Well, um, you, we sort of went into, you know, your earliest experiences with the band, but um, if you could, you know, just, just through your fellow band members, you know, maybe telling you the story, or, you know, passing down the info, Remind us how how did how did the band actually form in in Chicago back in the day? I guess it was like '67, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pretty much uh, privy to that story. They were uh, all the Horn guys were students at DePaul University, um, and uh, trying to remember, Terry Kath, Danny Serafin, and uh, Walt Parazader were in a band together, um, and they actually toured i believe with uh like a dick clark um some type of dick clark review some type of show when they were teenagers and uh and then they decided walt decided that he thought it would be a good idea to put put together a a rock and roll band with horns and originally terry kath was actually playing bass guitar um but he switched over to guitar and I think Walt re recruited Jimmy Pankow and Lee Lochname from his buddies at DePaul to form the horn section. Um, and then, uh, and Danny was there. Peter Cetera came in a little bit late in the game. Um, they found Robert Lamb. Robert Lamb came in. Um, they auditioned him. He came in with a whole notebook full of song lyrics. And so Robert already had a bunch of songs written. So they thought that was cool. And uh, so originally it was the six guys and Robert was playing Hammond organ and actually playing the bass notes with his feet, you know, kicking bass pedals. And then they decided, well, we need to find a bass player. Um, so there was a rival band in, in the Chicago area called, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what the name of the thing was because they called themselves the big thing. And then, Peter was in a different group and I can't remember the name of it, but they went and saw him and they recruited him and he jumped ship and joined them. Um, big, big, huge bonus though was they got a bass player that could sing his butt off. You know, I mean, Satara's voice was like uh, when they heard him sing, you know, the high tenor thing that just rounded out the whole, the whole ball of wax for the group. And so they started playing clubs around uh, Chicago and mostly they were kind of a, 
you know, I don't want to call them a supper club band, but they were like a, you know, they were wearing suits and ties and doing like choreographed dance moves and playing like Motown and, and they were writing their own material, but they would try to sneak the songs in and the club owners would, would come down on them and say like, you know, you can't play that, can't play that original music, you know, you got to stick to the stuff that, that makes the people dance. So they would, so they kind of stuck to the story. And then the, as Jimmy told me, when Sergeant Peppers came out, the Beatles record, they all, uh, they all dropped acid and listened to Sergeant Peppers. <laughs> and the very next day they, they, they declared, you know, forget this. We're not doing these cover tunes anymore. We're going to do our own thing. I think Terry Kath literally like ripped his suit off on stage as you know, legend has it. <laughs> and they did the entire night of nothing but their original material. And the club owner came up and tried to shut them down. And apparently Robert Lamb dove off the stage and jumped on the guy and started like a fist fight. <laughs> with a fist and then fight? Of, course they, of course they were fired um so then you know at, at that point they 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 went forward you know we are we are a legitimate original music rock band and that's all we're gonna do and they you know they they got discovered by uh i guess it was uh, uh jim gersio i think it was either jim gersio or clive davis <clears throat> i think it was gersio who brought him out to la and then they started playing at the whiskey you know, every week and building a following. And then Jimi Hendrix came in and heard him and invited them to come on the road with him to open the show. Oh, they opened and for that, Hendrix on the road? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That was kind of the big, that was the big exposure moment. They hadn't even, I don't even think they'd released their first album yet. And, and Hendrix took them on the road. So they opened for Hendrix and that, that got them a lot of exposure. You know, in the really early days, Chicago was like, uh, they were considered sort of a kind of an underground prog rock, you know, um, you know, the college kids loved them, you know, because they were sort of edgy and political and proggy and, you know, not mainstream. Right. So, you know, so that's kind of how that all got going. And then, uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, really wasn't until the second album, though, that they, they broke huge, which was uh, when Make Me Smile came out as, as a single. Um, you know, they had had moderate success with the, the hits from the first album. But when Make Me Smile became such a huge song, um, the uh, Columbia Records re-released beginnings does anybody really know what time it is question 67 to 68 and then those songs became even bigger because uh you know of the you know the pull of make me smile wow wow thanks for taking me through that whole formation evolution and i i didn't know they opened for hendrix i didn't know they got kicked out of the club and jumped off the stage in the fist fight that that's gold thanks man <laughs> um cool well um 
you know, you brought us to the point where they're, you know, where Chicago is, is, uh, is signed. And um, let's run through some of, some of the hits. Um, how about, does anybody really know what time it is? You said that was one of the first ones you remember hearing as a kid. But, um, man, what do you think makes that song work? Well, one of the magical things about it was um, that literally is the very first song that the band recorded in the studio. Um, so these guys were basically just kids, teenagers. I think uh, Jimmy must have been probably 18 maybe when they cut that song because he's the youngest of the original four. Well, the original Danny was younger than uh, Danny might have been 17. <clears throat> but anyway, so that was a song that Robert had that was that was kind of an intact song, I guess, uh, that he brought to the band. And that was the very first song they cut um, when they went into Columbia Studios in New York City. You know, and they were like deer in the headlights, you know, as they have told me, you know, that they were like, uh, it was all new to them. They were in the city and they were in the studio and they'd never been in the studio. And, you know, the red light came on and, and you know, that was a... a eight track recording so there wasn't a lot of room for error in other words uh not eight track like the one that goes in your car but like eight track uh tape machine you know in other words you had eight tracks of recording to to get your get, get your song together <clears throat> the beatles did a lot of their stuff on four track which is even you know harder now you can have unlimited tracks with pro tools because it's all digital so you can have 100 tracks of information so in other words they had to commit to drum sounds horn sounds because once it was recorded a lot of stuff was already pre-mixed you know to, to make it all fit on that eight track uh tape recorder but uh but yeah you know i mean that song we play it every night. I've probably played it 2,500 times now, uh, if not more, with the band. And uh, it never it never gets old. It never gets tired. People always like it. I still like playing it. There's something about that sort of swing feel that, that it has that uh, I just think, uh, I don't know. People, people actually get up and dance for that one. Um. 25 or 6 to 4. I love that song. It's I think it's one of the coolest songs ever. But so, solve the argument over what the title means. Is it is it literally just 25 or 26 minutes to 4 o'clock? Is that what it is? That's exactly what it is. If you read the <laughs> lyric, um, Robert Lamb was sitting in his apartment, I believe in New York City, and he was trying to write a song. Uh, so he was uh, he was waiting for the break of day, searching for something to say you know flashing lights against the sky that would be new york you know giving up i close my eyes sitting cross-legged on the floor what is it 25 or six minutes to four in the morning is basically what that was um so it's it's a song about writing a song and it's getting really late and he feels like he's kind of stuck and and has nothing to say so what he found to say was that he was writing a song and he was stuck and that became uh you know and the time of day it was when he was feeling sort of uh stuck and, and the funny 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of people uh, think, uh, oh, well, you know, it's the it's the formula for acid or it's, you know, it's some drug reference or and it's as simple as that. And just just goes to show you that you just never know what I kind of liken it a little bit to like uh, I heard on the radio just the other day, uh, Phil Collins song Susudio. Oh, yeah. Right. So. The story behind that was is that Phil was writing the writing this song, and when he got to the chorus, he just sang something that sounded phonetically interesting, su su studio, you know, and he was like, you know, I'll I'll I'll, I'll change that later and put something real in there that makes sense, you know, and once he finished the song, he was kind of like. Well, I kind of like that, you know. It's it's almost that or Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, body ah, dancing in September, body ah. What is, you know, the the one of the, one of the outside songwriters was like, well, we've got to replace body ah with something that actually makes sense. And the you know Maurice White was like, no, I like it. You know, it sings well. Those placeholder yeah. lyrics become the real ones once you get used to it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, not that w what Robert wrote was nonsensical, but it was it was real, literally just uh, like you say, a song about writing a song and a reference to the time of day. Um, you know, a lot of people are disappointed when they find out that that's what it is because they, they want something deeper. But uh, well, thanks for yeah. clarifying that. I mean, I based on what he's talking about, you can tell it's about the time of day. So but but what always made my brain hurt was <laughs> i thought it was like you know six six to four i'd be like wait a minute that's like 22 not 25 hours like you know what i mean i was trying to do the math and it made i'm right. sure it made a lot of people's heads hurt so thanks it's 25 or 26 minutes to four thank you for clarifying um cool saturday in the park uh that that was always a little kind of a bouncy but we catchy one but uh why, why do you think that one was such a hit um again i, I you know robert just had a back for uh, coming up with sort of hooky, um, you know, I've always told him, you know, you, you do your best work when you just sit down at the piano and just start banging around. And that's sort of the way he, uh, you know, Saturday was, you know, he had a little room where he, where he wrote and he sat down at the piano and a tape recorder and he, you know, that riff came out and, uh, and, uh, so that's sort of how that, the genesis of that song was and i think he was still living in new york and probably was looking out his window at central park and uh and uh there came that song and uh trying to remember what the motown tune was there's a tune that even he admits that he loose, loosely based kind of the the feel of that song and i think it might have been uh might have been Mustang Sally. And if you think about the feel of, of uh, the rhythm section in Mustang Sally um, alongside of Saturday in the Park, you know, they're, they're not similar songs, but just the kind of the groove. So he was going for something that was potentially, again, going to make people want to get up and kind of dance and clap their hands. And we see that every night.
Love it. It's a cool song. All right. And ha- and then the ultimate, like, you know, apology song. Hard to say I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, is there a better apology song ever? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, that's a good one. Um, you know, that was a Satara David Foster thing. And, um, you know, that was the song literally that put uh that put essentially another era onto the career of chicago you know the band uh suffered terry kath's death in 1977 um 77 or was it january was it 78 i should know that um but then uh, you know they made a couple records in the middle there after gersio departed producing the band and after terry uh passed away and they didn't really have a lot of commercial success and then 1981 i guess it was enter david foster um who was coming off of uh what had he done he'd done a couple things for the tubes he'd produced bill champlin's solo stuff um and they went in the studio and uh him and satara hit it off and they uh they wrote that song and it became, I guess, a number one single and launched basically the 80s era of Chicago, which also, of course, included uh, You're the Inspiration, Hard Habit to Break, uh, um, Along Comes a Woman, Stay the Night, Love Me Tomorrow. So it's kind of cool. You know, we kind of have, it's literally like, um, there's the seventies era and the eighties era that we can draw upon for uh, hit songs, which is kind of cool. Oh, absolutely. You know? And I remember, and, and it's funny. And you mentioned those seventies and eighties eras, but then uh, come the nineties, which full disclosure, when I, when I was growing up, um, they brought back hard to say, I'm sorry. I think it, uh, what Babyface remixed it for as yet as an R and B tune. And Satara, I think was like, I think gave David Foster might've put Satara on like a remix or something, but uh, that, yeah. that, so those songs are timeless. Um, but you mentioned a couple of them, but tell me about you're the inspiration too. tell me about, you know, if hard to say, I'm sorry, is like the ultimate apology song. You're the inspiration is like the ultimate, like, you know, I love you here. Here's why I love you. song. you're the inspiration, but why do you think it works so well? Well, you know, one of the, the, uh, the truth behind You're the Inspiration was um, <clears throat> Kenny Rogers was actually making a record. And, uh, and Peter and David Foster got together and said, you know, hey, do you want to try to write a tune for uh, Kenny Rogers' new record? So they went in the studio and they wrote You're the Inspiration. And Satara sang it. And they sent it to Kenny Rogers, who declined to record the song. Come on, he Kenny. Said, I'll be like Kramer. Kenny. <laughs> I know. So he was like, uh, yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't want the tune. And uh, so basically what's on the record uh, is essentially the demo that they cut to present to uh, Kenny Rogers. And um, it wound up on the Chicago album and it wound up being a huge hit. So they were right about the song and Kenny uh, missed out on one there. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very uh, straight up, 
you know, love song. I wonder if Kenny Rogers was ever kicking himself that watching Chicago climb the charts with that one. Uh, I think he did okay. I think he was all right. Rest in peace, gambler. Uh, All right, maybe time for one more. Will You Still Love Me? That one always comes to mind of hearing it constantly on the radio, you know, growing up in the 80s as well. But um, any good fun stories on the making of Will You Still Love Me? Well, I mean, the only fun story about Will You Still Love Me would be that uh, that was obviously the... uh, that that was the first hit uh post peter satara mm-hmm. um, actually the first thing they released off of chicago 18 which was the record they did with david foster but with jason chef on vocals um instead of peter the first thing they released was a remake of 25 or 6 to 4 and <clears throat> and the the reception to that was not great because, you know, sometimes if it ain't broke, you don't fix it. You know, 25 or 64 is such a classic song and the record is so well known that uh, people didn't really want to hear it. So that kind of went away. And then they released uh, Will You Still Love Me? And I believe, I don't remember what, what chart, uh, I don't think it went to number three, maybe, on the pop charts. I'm seeing number, th- whatever list I have, which who knows, but <laughs> if it's right, but it says number three on the Billboard Hot 100, yeah. Well, there you go. Then I did know my my history. Impressive. <laughs> but the interesting thing about it was, um, so simultaneous with Chicago releasing um, or recording their record, Peter Cetera was over doing his first solo album. Right, right. right, right. And, and um, according to Jason, uh, David Foster, their producer, got a hold of a, uh, a mix, uh, a rough mix of The Glory of Love, which was going to be Cetera's first single. Right. So he, he came into the studio and played it for the guys and says, this is what we've got to beat and played them the glory of love. And they all looked at each other and went, whoa, you know, this is going to be a huge hit. And it was, it was a number one record. It, it was, uh, <clears throat> so will you still love me was kind of their response to, uh, uh, glory of love. And, you know, both songs were huge and both did really well. And so, you know, it was all, uh, all good in the hood at that point but uh but yeah i don't remember i can't remember the songwriters on that they were i I think they were both outside writers on will you still love me i'm not mistaken it says um it says david foster tom keen and richard baskin but yes Uh, you're you're right notable for satara leaving and then uh jason chef is lead vocals yeah yep I, i remember when i bought um at the time I was living in Richmond, Virginia. And I remember, I remember when Tara left and I was kind of like, Oh boy, you know, this is huge. Um, and I, I went out and I bought Chicago 18 on vinyl and I, I brought it home and I put the record on. And I think the first song on the record is a song called Niagara Falls. <clears throat> and I heard Jason's voice on there and, you know, he had this really high tenor, you know, very present tenor voice and i went wow i think they're going to be okay it sounds like they found a guy you know and uh 
So it was kind of cool. I just think it's cool that unlike other bands, you know, that they kept naming it, you know, Chicago 18. I mean, I guess you had like, you know, Led Zeppelin 4. There's some precedent. But, um, you know, instead of actual album titles, I thought it's always cool that they just kept it going. Chicago with with the numeric. I think that's really that's special. Um, Cool. Well, I mean, that sort of brings us to present day then. So then you join them in 95. And uh, how, I guess let's end there. How did you get the call to actually join them? Like, were you repinching yourself? <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't get the call. <laughs> um, so the the i've told this story probably a million times so i'm going to give you the cliff notes version a little bit but uh, thank you for million and the, one right here it's kind of a kind of long a long story but so i was living in la and i had uh i'd done i had done a year with rick springfield and i had worked with a jazz saxophonist named warren hill and I was in Olivia Newton-John's band for about a week, um, but she w- was diagnosed with breast cancer and, and had to cancel her tour. So I was, I was basically kind of sitting home out of work. You know, I'd done a few things, but I was uh, essentially unemployed and I was looking for work. And so I, was, I started making phone calls. <clears throat> One of the phone calls I made was to a friend of mine named Dave Friedman, who, uh, who at the time was a, an amplifier repair guy. And his shop was inside of a rehearsal studio in North Hollywood called Third Encore. And I said, Dave, I said, if, uh, if you ever hear, you know, most bands audition musicians in a rehearsal studio. So, and he worked in, in one. And I said, well, if you ever hear, hear of anybody looking for anybody, I'm looking for a gig. And uh, I got a phone call from him about a month later. And he said, hey, um, Chicago is down here auditioning guitar players today. And uh, and I went, today? Couldn't you have given me a little more advance warning? And he's like, he go, I, I just found out about it. And I was like, whoa. So I tried to call their management. And they basically blew me off said you know we got eight guys we're listening to it's a closed audition sorry you know and uh so i was sitting in my my uh in my house drinking a cup of coffee and i was what am i gonna do now i was like that that would be the perfect gig for me but how can i get them to listen to me right (laughs) i threw all my gear in my car and i drove down to third encore and i got i parked in the parking lot and i just essentially waited for the guys to show up um they weren't there yet and uh one by one i saw the guys walk into the rehearsal studio and i was like i can't talk to robert lamb i can't talk to jimmy panko i can't talk to walt parasader i can't talk to lee Lockmane. they're gonna just tell me to go home kid you know and i don't know those guys and the rest of the guys champlin walked in and tris walked in and the last guy to show up, and I found out later that that was always the case, was Jason, chef. And I had actually met Jason once. Um, he had poked his head into a, a rehearsal studio where I was playing with a, a kind of an original band project. And he knew the drummer. And I had actually said to him, you know, I was like, wow, man, you're great to meet you. I love Chicago. If you guys ever need a guitar player, I'm your guy kind of jokingly 
right? Not knowing that later on they'd be looking for somebody. So when Jason got out of his car, I jumped out of my car and went over and said, hey, man, do you remember me? I was in that band with Sergio, you know, your buddy who was playing drums. And he kind of was like, uh, not really. And I was like, yeah, it was like three or four months ago. You don't remember? And he goes, well, maybe. And I said, man, I'd really like an opportunity to audition. And he said, well, give me your number. Let me see what I can do. And I guess he thought about it. And he wound up uh, calling me. And he had talked the guys into uh, extending an extra day to listen to me. And so uh, I went down. I played six songs. Last one was 25 or 6 to 4. Uh, uh, soon as the song ended, the band called a band meeting out in the hallway and left me in the room alone. And uh, they came back in and they offered me the gig. So that was, uh, that's how that happened. You know, I... Uh, I almost, you know, hung up the phone and poured another cup of coffee and waited for the next opportunity. But I just thought, man, I can't let this pass me by. I'm going to have to at least, I'm going to have to go outside my comfort zone a little bit, you know, and try to, try to make, will this to happen. And it did. So, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, you made Silver Spring proud for sure. And, uh, you know, and coming full circle with Merriweather and all the local connections, you made us proud, sir. Um, cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This, you've been really generous with your time. Um, wait, actually, real quick. I, so when the band goes in in the Rock Hall of Fame in 2016, then you've been playing with them for like uh, over a decade or even almost two at that point. Um, close to, yeah, close two decades, 20, yeah. 21 years or something at that point. So how does that work? Like, so they obviously, I guess they just induct the standard as they induct the original members, but then you're like, Hey, Hey guys, like I, I've been here for 20 years. <laughs> Where Don't I get to go up on stage? <laughs> well, you know, that's always been a bone of contention with a lot of bands going into the rock hall because, uh, right. um, you know, even Jason chef who actually had, who was with the group for 30 years and actually had several hit songs with the group wasn't inducted right uh, they're very much about the original band members that created the original music in the early stages of, of a band's formation getting inducted haven't seen too many <clears throat> i believe michael mcdonald got inducted with the doobie brothers i guess they they deemed that his impact was significant enough um to warrant that but you don't see like very, a Sammy Hagar with Van Halen kind of a deal. Well, yes. Or did he go in with them? No, I don't think he did. He didn't? I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. He should have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were more successful with Sammy than, than Dave. I'm looking it up right now in real time during this interview. <laughs> uh, well, yes. Know. No, you are right. He, he did go in with them as well. Yep, he did. So it was... Sammy, Dave, Eddie, Alex, and Michael, and that's it. Yeah. Right. It was uh, Sammy, Eddie, David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, and Alex Van Halen. Yep. Right. So now yeah. we're getting into the weeds on something that, like, just this morning, Todd Rundgren was like, yeah, I'm going in, but I don't care. It's all about the music. And so, and here we go, deep into the woods on, <laughs> on another band. But I think it's fun talking music. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, the rock hall is kind of a, a thing that, uh, you know, a lot of artists have uh, mixed feelings about it. Um, some have sort of reluctantly gone in and some gladly accepted the honor um, just based on those kind of things alone. Like I know a couple of, couple of bands felt really, uh, you know, like they had members in their groups that were in their band for like 40 years, but the, those guys weren't inducted and they're kind of like, really, you know, this guy is just as important as, you know, Bob, who was in the band for three years, but you want to put Bob in because he was in the original lineup, you know, or whatever. I'm just being hypothetical, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of hit and miss there. Exactly. But either way, regardless of the accolades, it's really cool that Chicago um, has been around for so long and stuck around and it's still fresh in everyone's minds with all the hits over all the years. And you've been a big part of that for, for the last several decades. So congrats on that. Thanks for doing Silver Spring Pro. <laughs> and uh, everyone check out Chicago at MGM National Harbor on October 8th. Hey, thanks for doing this. This was a blast. Hey, man, no problem. I appreciate the, you having me, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.